Hendrix was in a band called Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. Mitch Mitchell was apparently in a band called Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. I saw that as well. I was like, did they just discover Blue Flame technology or something like that? <laughs> it's like when Blue Raspberry came out in the 90s and it was like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends, musicians, complainers, but most importantly, music fans tell the stories behind history's most influential albums from the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So we'll hit some history, give you some context on the artist and album, and then dive into some of the actual tracks. Now, as musicians, we've got nothing but the utmost respect for anyone willing to open up and pour their hearts out on the tape, but it's also fun to nitpick the things you love. So just a warning, we may have some hot takes on this album. Now, at the end of all this, we're going to vote on whether or not you actually need to hear this album before you die, and then we'll select next week's album. I want to thank you for spending some time with us today, and I'm very excited because we are in the middle of Listener Request Month. That's right. We asked you, the listener, to send in your requests and votes on albums you want us to cover, and we've been tallying up those votes. And I just want to let my co-hosts, as well as our listeners, know that you will never be as cool as tonight's band. Because you have never had a rehearsal interrupted by world-renowned composer Henry Mancini telling you that you were playing too loud. Mancini bangs, that's what I hear. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the epitome of cool. (laughs) Adam, the composer interrupting you, the guy who made the organ song for the baseball games. That tells you how cool I am. So my name is Adam. I've been playing music for 30 years. I'm not cool, and I've played professionally for over a decade. And today, I'm both honored and a little terrified to be leading us through the 1967 debut release from the Jimi Hendrix Experience, an album called... Are you experienced? We'll get to our crew introductions in just a minute, but first let's jump right into the music with the first track off the original UK release of the album, a song that needs no introduction, but I'll do it anyway. This one is called Foxy Lady. All right, now that we've got a taste of what we've been listening to all week, let's throw it around the studio here to get those beloved tweet-length reviews and introductions for our crew today. Let's throw it to Alan first. Hey, it's Alan here. I'm tempted to just opt out of this. I don't know what I can add to this conversation (laughs) that hasn't been said about this band, but I'll give it a shot here. So my tweet-length review is... It's one thing to change the entire course of artistic history, essentially overnight. It's another thing to do it when you're 24 or 25 years old. But even more remarkable, here we sit 50 plus years later, and nobody has done it better since. All right. Let's throw it over to Rob. Hey, Adam. Thanks so much. It's Rob here. My tweet length review is not quite as hagiographic. 
It is. Jimmy's personality shines through on every track in the come-hither vocals and the muscle car engine rev guitar playing. And despite sounding like it was recorded inside a garbage can, <laughs> this record still pops 55 years later. Wait, I need to know what that word was that you uh, used to describe my text, because I've never heard that word. Before. I have my word-a-day calendar. Hang on. Let me go to <laughs> hagiographic. Well, Rob's about to get some college professor writing in telling him he's pronouncing that wrong. <laughs> Sons of bitches. <laughs> you guys can look that up at home. It's when you're overly gushing in mm. as a biographer or someone who's writing about someone's life. It's like a fluff piece. Almost. Oh, well, buckle up. <laughs> well, you queued my tweet length review up nicely there, Rob. So this is Tom. My tweet length review is... As if making Eric Clapton cry isn't enough to get me to like you, Jimi <laughs> Hendrix virtually invents a slinky, free-rambling guitar style on Are You Experienced that is effortlessly cool and confirms that Hendrix isn't just great because he did it first. In many ways, he still did it best. All right, everybody, and this is Adam, and my tweet was that Jimi Hendrix finds that sometimes to find success, you just have to pick up and move to England, where your novelty is enough to get your foot in the door a door which you ultimately rip off the hinges barely a week into being in the country. I honestly, I was amazed by how fast all that stuff happened. That was one of the things that kind of blew me away. It was like, oh, I'm homeless. Oh, I'm the darling of the London scene. Like smash cut to three weeks later and he's the darling of the London scene. <laughs> I joked at the top there that I was a bit terrified because it's, it's hard to boil down this man's life into, you know, an hour plus. We could easily spend a couple episodes on his life. So this week for me was more about learning about Jimi Hendrix and not necessarily this album. But one of the things I kept coming back to this week was waiting for him to hit because the story of his life is very tortured. And I kept thinking, okay, now's when he gets famous. Now is when he gets famous. Now is, and it never happened until Tom, like you said, there was like this three week period where he was nobody. And then all of a sudden shot to the top of popularity in London. So a very cool week for me to dig more into the history of this guy. Yeah, I know very little. And so I'm excited to learn more in the background, Adam, but I agree. It is as as described just now, sometimes a change of scenery makes all the difference, right? The genius is just the, the guy from the next town over bringing some new <laughs> ideas and some new color. And these were, I think, new ideas in a way that I had to contextualize his playing a lot to appreciate that. I think that when I first was listening to Jimi Hendrix, like most people, listen to Jimi Hendrix in high school, and they're kind of like, oh, this is really cool. But when you start thinking about the context in which this was coming out, it really did feel like something new. He's very, he's a natural guitar player, very natural, feels very free flowing, definitely can tell he's self-taught. He's breaking the rules because he doesn't know what the rules are. But I also think that if you compare him to the British blues players of the time, they were trying to emulate the old blues guys. And Jimi Hendrix was trying to take that into the future and trying to take that a step forward. And it just sounded so different than somebody doing a shitty Muddy Waters impression. <laughs> right, he was right. doing a completely different thing. It, it's an interesting point. Since this came out, not that this was invented blues by any stretch of the imagination, but there's been so many, so much bad blues since this era that it's hard to even think that 
there was a point that this was like fresh, that there was like a fresh take on this type of music. I was surprised in a couple ways upon re-listen. Well, first of all, I'm not sure I ever gave this album a really hard listen. Like most kids of our age, we didn't live through Jimi Hendrix, obviously. And, or it's obvious to us in this room anyway. And I started out with the greatest hits record and you hear these songs on classic rock radio all the time. I'm sure my mother had a LP copy or one of the copies. We're going to talk about the different track listings on various vinyl issues of this record, but the deep cuts I really was not familiar with at all. And I had definitely not even analyzed even the major songs. I don't feel like I'd analyzed them with, with depth. In fact, I think I had come to think of Hendrix as one of those, not so much something that, teen, you know, it's he's one of these artists that as a teenager, when you're first playing, you tend to get fascinated by. He's kind of everywhere. He's a god. He breaks all these rules, etc. But in some sense, I had outgrown him. And then when I came back to him, I had it in my head that the latter two records, not this one, were the the true Jimi Hendrix representations. Now, that opinion hasn't been totally knocked aside, I should point out. So I will have a few complaints about what goes on here. But what you guys are saying, I think, is accurate. It was a, it was a force of nature just to your ears. It just puts you in a time and place so freaking clearly. Yeah, well, and I think what I've always struggled with about Hendrix is growing up, I think the this idea of him being the greatest guitar player of all time, it, it, in a way, like holds back your opinion because... I can still remember the first time I ever heard any Jimi Hendrix material growing up, having heard that, oh, the best guitar player of all time. And when I've heard it, I was expecting Steve Vai, like Shred Fest. Right. And he does shred, clearly. But like, it has taken me a lot of time over the years to to sort of figure out the very subtle things he's doing that were innovative, that it doesn't immediately jump off the page if you are coming into it with like preconceived ideas, let's, I, I want to get right into that. If that's all right. I know we haven't even really talked about what we think about the music yet, but the best guitar player in the world thing, what you're saying is important because he is the antithesis of a technical player. Like Steve Vai, you just referenced or people, let's say from the Van Halen school, if there's a yeah. spectrum, a wise man once said that it, you can go, take guitar lessons or take guitar class or practice six hours a day for three years and you will get fast, but you, none of that will help you sound more like Jimi Hendrix. Sure. And even to throw it back, not to like a Steve Vai or Eddie Van Halen, go back to like a contemporary of his, like a Jeff Beck, much more technical guitar player, but there is an expressiveness in Jimi Hendrix's guitar playing that is undeniable. And I was I found the juxtaposition of everybody talking about how shy he was and how hard it was for him to express himself in life and how expressive he was as a guitar player. It's a very interesting It's remarkable. It's almost like a bipolar disorder. Like he was he was so nervous he had a stuttering problem. And when he would get super anxious, he would start to stutter even as an adult. And then you look to your right and here's this guy, you know, playing it with his teeth. You're like, wait, the this is the same guy. It's just, it's wild. Just as he, as he sounds on the tape, just exudes confidence and authority. And well, and you look at him like he's, he looks apart too. It's not like he's some schlubby, you know, yeah. dude who's behind the scenes playing. Like he's not a Christopher Cross looking motherfucker. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> no, and, but it's funny that you mentioned that because I remember this reminds me of an interview I saw recently or a few months ago with David Byrne, where 
he's being asked about, do you think it's weird that you're this borderline spectrum-y introvert, yet your onstage persona is like not that at all? You're like totally out there. And he's like, no, I don't think it's weird at all because that's the only way that I have known how to express myself. I remember Michael Stipe giving an interview a long time ago where he talked about the person on stage is that's not even me. That's a character I'm playing. That makes it so much easier. I'm a very shy person. I'm very reserved. But when I get on stage, I'm in a role and I know what it what I need to do to execute on that role. And I can see where a guy like Hendrix, who is humble, who is shy, who doesn't feel like he can get his point across would really embrace that role of everybody's listening to me in the way that I feel comfortable expressing myself and therefore I'm going to pour so much of myself into that. And it is honestly, it really does come across as soulful in a way that I feel like is lacking in a lot of that early or mid-60s British blues rock stuff that was going on. There's a soul to it that is just undeniable. All right, so we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to jump right in. And at the top, in order to keep today's podcast under six hours, I'm going to have to omit some details from his life for which I apologize. But I also want to leave a little meat on the bone since Jimmy has two other albums that are on the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. I got to interject, Adam. Yeah. Is this the only artist where all their proper album releases ever have made the list? That's a great question. I don't know. With more than one. Probably with more than oh, right, one. Right, there might be some one. artists that put out one album that got on the list. Fun-loving criminal. Probably had one album. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guarantee you those guys have had like 17 albums or something like that, and they're all garbage. Which, to be clear, is the first time that they have ever been lumped in with Jimi Hendrix of any First and only time it should ever happen. <laughs> I forgot to mention it last week on the Radiohead episode, but there was some anecdote. I don't know what award it was for. They were like, Radiohead's OK Computer is up for such and such award in the same category as fun-loving criminals. What? Oh, my God. <laughs> so this week I read two books. Count them two. One was called Room Full of Mirrors, and the other was called The Jimi Hendrix and the Making of Are You Experienced? So normally we start back at the birth of an artist, but I want to take it back even further to Jimi Hendrix's ancestors, as he's a pretty interesting mix of Native American, African slaves, and white slave masters as his ancestors. So going back to Jimmy's maternal grandfather was a guy named Preston Jeter. Preston's mother was a slave, and his father was the slave master. He was born into freedom, but he got the hell out of Richmond, Virginia after witnessing a lynching and winds up resettling in Washington State, about 80 miles away from Seattle. Good thing there's no racists in Washington State. Exactly. Totally cool. <laughs> Very diverse. It was actually, you'll, we'll find out that Seattle was pretty damn diverse at the time. Oh, no, no. Seattle's cool. But you get east of that. 80 miles away is a different story, I think. Oh, yeah. You get some compounds out there. Preston eventually finds his wife in a newspaper ad and a woman named Clarice Lawson, who was descended from slaves and Cherokee Native Americans. So after giving up a baby for adoption, Preston, and which was not Preston's, but Preston and Clarice moved to Seattle, which was turning out to be a real melting pot of cultures, eventually where Jimmy would grow up. Are we just going to breeze past the fact that he got his wife 
through an ad in the paper. It's the way you do it back in the day, man. What's the copy on that ad? Like Wanted. looking for a man? Like what is that? <laughs> looking to buy, crazy. looking to sell. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. They didn't have the uh, the microfiche of the actual ad, although uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's out there somewhere. <laughs> Adam was in the uh, the archives. The archives with <laughs> Library of Congress. <laughs> I went hard this week, man. So Lucille, who will be Jimmy's mother, was born in Seattle in 1925, eight weeks premature. She had a pretty rough childhood. That's going to be a theme that we see. She was raised by her aunts and even sent off to live with a German foster family until she was 10 years old. Okay, so that's Jimmy's mother's side. Let's jump over to Jimmy's father's side. So his paternal grandfather was a guy named Bertrand Hendricks, who was born a year after the Civil War ended. And he was the child of an unwed slave woman and the man who owned her. No big surprise there. The mother named him after the slave master, hoping that the slave master would take a liking to the son. Didn't happen. So Bertrand would... He wasn't a cool guy? He, he was just not... just like a real chill dude? No? Okay. Not a cool dude. So he would grow up to become a stagehand in the vaudeville scene, and he eventually winds up marrying a woman, and this would be Jimmy's paternal grandmother, named Nora Moore, who was also Cherokee, on account of her great-grandmother being full-blood Cherokee. So Nora and Bertrand get together and move to Vancouver, Canada, a city that was so white, they stood out as nothing but oddities. In 1919, they give birth to a beautiful baby boy who had six fingers on each hand. This is a guy named James Allen Hendricks, who would go by Al Hendricks. That's Jimmy's father. We're at Jimmy's parents' generation. So Al meets Lucille. Six fingers on each hand? I'm sorry. I I keep jumping in with a six fingers (laughs) on each hand? What the fuck? Yeah. What instrument did he play? Yeah, right? (laughs) Well, the mother tried to get rid of them by like soaking rags in hot water and tying them around the nubs and trying to cut the blood off. What the? Cut the circulation off, but they kept coming back. Do you guys remember the SNL sketch for like fingers, fingers be gone? (laughs) (laughs) It was like a paste you put on your extra fingers and they fell off. Like Victoria Jackson and Kevin (laughs) Neal. All right, so... (laughs) Al's got, you know, five fingers and then nubs when he grows up. So he meets Lucille. He courts her for a bit, but her parents are very weary because Al can't hold down a job. Even with the extra fingers? I was going to say, you'd think he'd be super productive. (laughs) Oh, my God. You'd think he'd have superhero grip. (laughs) Jesus, he's opening jars for everyone in the town or something. (laughs) Al gets called up for the draft the same week that Lucille finds out that she's pregnant. Al finally convinces her parents to let her marry him, and the couple gets married in March of 1942. Al ships out for basic training three days later. Flash forward eight months, and on Thanksgiving Day, November 27th, 1942, Lucille gives birth to one Johnny Allen Hendricks, the first of three legal names he'd have in his lifetime, though everyone in his childhood would call him Buster. So the instability of his childhood began when, within a year of his birth, Lucille, who was living with her mother, Clarice at the time, and their house burnt down. So Lucille and Jimmy lived a very transitory life early on, bouncing around between family and friends' houses. Now, Lucille, who is living back in the U.S., Al is overseas. She's trying, trying to wait for Al But she started hanging out with her girlfriends and other guys and met some other men's. There were rumors of neglect of Jimmy. And Lucille's 17. She's young and wild when Jimmy's born. And so basically, Jimmy's being raised by his grandmother, his aunts, and friends. After a church trip to California from Seattle, Lucille and the family intentionally leave Jimmy with a family friend named Mrs. Champ because she had more resources. 
They just left him there. And they left him there for so long that the champs were considering adopting him. I thought you were going to say they called them the champs because they had more resources. <laughs> yeah, <maybe. laughs> they had that uh, tequila <laughs> royalty money coming in. Yes. <laughs> so Al gets back from the war in 1945, having already started divorce proceedings overseas. So their relationship's really great. So the first time he meets Jimmy, Jimmy's three years old. And with their inevitable breakup on the horizon, Lucille agrees to let Jimmy live with Al. So now Al moves to the first racially integrated housing project in the entire U.S., which is in Seattle. So he and Lucille get back together. They're on and off, very hot and cold relationship. Uh, lots of big fights. They're both basically alcoholics. And uh, this is always great for raising a child as well. And one of the first things Al does is to legally change Jimmy's name to James Marshall Hendricks from Johnny Allen. So he got rid of Allen because Allen is a stupid name. Well, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> if only we could all get rid of Allen. Right? <laughs> oh, if I could get rid of Allen, I would. Trust me. <laughs> Jimmy and Al wind up living in boarding houses and in the projects, and they wind up also living out of cheap motels. And this starts a cycle of Jimmy being bounced around between these scenarios, family, friends, houses. He winds up getting shifted around to a ton of different schools, and it, it ain't great, let's, let's say that. Now, Lucille and Al are still kind of together, and they had another child named Leon. A year after that, they had another baby boy named Joe, who suffered from really bad birth defects. Not exactly what they needed, considering that Jimmy and Leon were already legitimately malnourished and would basically eat at friends' houses every night of the week. So they continued to roll the dice. They have another child named Kathy, who's extremely premature and blind, and they basically give her away into the foster care system. Jesus. That was an option? <laughs> I wish they'd give me that pamphlet when I left the hospital. <laughs> Don't want your kid? <laughs> just give him away. <laughs> I'm just kidding, kids. I love you. You know this is being recorded, right? Yeah, right, right. I know. <laughs> and it's going to be on the internet forever. I love you, kids. I never would want to give you away. This will be like that one one or two redacted Joe Rogan episodes that they had to go scrub when he went on Spotify. Is the local firehouse a little too inconvenient for you to drop your baby off at? Oh, my God. They have another girl named Pamela who they also give up to foster care. So, so far, we've got Jimmy, Leon, Joe, Kathy, Pamela. The two girls are gone, and at age 10, after Al and Lucille get divorced, Jimmy watches his father take little Joe rents a car, puts him in it, and drives him away and gives him up to be a ward of the state because Al, the father, refused to pay for the operations that would help Joe live a normal life. He even refused to let other family members adopt Joe because he thought that he'd still be on the hook for the, the young kid's surgeries and medical treatments. It's a real piece of shit, it, it, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, this story ends well, right? Yeah, Tell exactly. me that. Yeah. That's, that's, from, that's from what I didn't read to the end of the Wikipedia. So. <laughs> All right, so that's rough. But now things are looking up. Just kidding. Even though they get divorced, Lucy and I are still <laughs> screwing around. She gets pregnant again. This time, Jesus. it's another boy named Alfred, who has a ton of physical issues. And again, they give him up for adoption. That's Al number two? Alfred, yes, right, on? exactly. Come on. <laughs> so now, despite all this, Jimmy is a normal-ish young boy in, in that he likes comics, watching movies when he could afford them, and getting into trouble around the neighborhood. 
You know, it takes a village and neighbors would keep an eye out for the child welfare agents who would routinely drop in. So the neighbors would would make sure that Jimmy and Leon were not around when the child welfare agents came to knock on the door. And this is because Al and the boys lived in absolute squalor. Is that a positive thing? That the neighbors are like, let's keep you living in this shithole over here as opposed to, I mean, the foster system is not great. Don't get me wrong. But that seems like they might have been not helping out there. Yeah. Well, Al refused to clean or take out garbage because that was women's work. Wait, so uh, he gives away all of his kids and won't clean the house and that's shocking? Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the year is 1953. Jimmy starts listening to pop music on the radio and the first glimmer of his lifelong obsession with the guitar starts when he finds a broom on which he'd play air guitar. And his dad, no surprise, would yell at him for knocking the bristles out of the broom as he jumped around the house playing. Do you realize what you just did, Adam? You just gave all these loser air guitar players hope. (laughs) Oh, no, that's how Jimmy started. (laughs) Oh, don't act like you didn't play some air guitar as a kid. Come on. I had an air, uh, it was a, a tennis racket, an old wooden tennis racket was my guitar. So Jimmy was a bit of a vagabond, wandered around the neighborhood, but very quickly figured out who all the musicians were in the neighborhood just by walking around and listening. It wasn't until seventh grade that Jimmy had even heard of blues music. He first heard blues music by digging through his uncle's girlfriend's record collection that had Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, some of these old school guys. And now you may be asking why he was so close with his uncle's girlfriend, And that's because his father lost his job, fell behind on his mortgage, was constantly drunk. So Jimmy moved in with the uncle. Yet another move. So the uncle falls through. They lose their house. Jimmy's father's house is repossessed and they wind up in a boarding house. And Jimmy changes schools for like the fourth time in eight years. Adam, I'm sorry. Are you going to get soon to the part where Inigo Montoya tracks down Jimmy's father and (laughs) avenges? (laughs) It's coming up very soon. <laughs> we didn't hit our Andre the Giant segment yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so they're moved into a boarding house, but this is important because this house is the first place where Jimmy gets a hold of his real first guitar. So for a guitar god, we, we always got to tell the, the story of how they got their first guitar. So the owners of this boarding house had a paraplegic son. They're, I'm sorry, I'm like... <laughs> There is so much misery in this story. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see if I can get through that again. Uh, the, 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 <laughs> he pawned everything the family owned to get six rubber bands attached to a broom. I did see that somebody in an interview was talking about how Jimi Hendrix wanted a guitar so badly as a kid that a social worker made a note about how it was negatively psychologically impacting his life, his desire for a guitar that was so out of reach for his completely impoverished ass that they were like, this is never going to happen, and you really need to give up on that dream because this is really hurting your overall oh, outlook on Lord. life. This is Everything. when Sears sold guitars for like seven fifty, right? <laughs> Close. <laughs> it was five bucks, right? His first guitar was five yeah, bucks. Yeah, so the owners of the boarding house had a paraplegic son who had, who had a beat-up old guitar with one string on it, and they were throwing it out. When asked if he could have it, the woman charged him $5 for it. Like, what a dick wow. move. You're throwing <laughs> yes, it out, seriously. and you're going to go to this poor kid and be like, fine, $5. So some family friends offered to pay for it, 
And he never left it out of his sight after that. He would sleep with it, just carried it around constantly. All right, so now the year is 1957. Jimmy's 14 years old. He sees Elvis Presley play live from a hill outside of a stadium. In addition, he also sees Little Richard preaching in a church in Seattle. This is when apparently Little Richard had taken time and he was going around the country doing like a preaching tour. Uh, Little Richard was a gospel guy. There he you go. He was a right. gospel guy, man. Yeah. He, was, he was all in the church. He and Leon met him when he was preaching there in Seattle, which was funny because he will come up at later in his life. So after seeing both these two huge megastars, he starts to develop his own dream of owning a real guitar and becoming a proper musician but he's super poor, so he's got to find a way around that. So Jimmy eventually acquires strings for his guitar, but his father would force him, who Jimmy's a lefty, he would force him to play righty. So what do you do in this scenario? You string the guitar for righty, but you just flip it and play it the opposite way whenever your dad comes home. Jimi Hendrix learned guitar right side, left side, strings reversed. That's how he learned to play. Virtual savant. Upside down. He learned it upside down. That's yes. what you're saying? Yep. Well, the whole like uh, the comment I made earlier about how like he doesn't know the rules. He's just breaking all the rules. It makes a lot of sense when you figure out that yeah, he literally just learned everything backwards and was just like, I'm just going to do everything wrong. Everything wrong. The only thing I'm genuinely surprised by is that he didn't stay that way. I feel like there was a guy that we knew in college that played in that configuration, but that was the only thing he did. To be clear, just switching the strings around, it's going to be a really hard transition. Right. Not quite like learning from scratch, but not too far away. And to have the ambidextrous nature of being able to fret with both hands and strum with rhythm or pick with rhythm with both hands is just crazy to me. All right. So we're going to jump forward to mid-1958. His mother, Lucille, who is dying from cirrhosis of the liver and who is confined to a wheelchair, shows back up in their lives and dies two weeks later. Of cirrhosis of the liver, liver, liver. Sorry. Simpsons reference there. Got to throw that one in there. <laughs> so she had been absent from their life for like seven years and basically knows she's dying. So she comes out just to kind of say goodbye to the kids. And Al, being the wonderful, loving father we've all come to appreciate at this point, forbids the boys from attending the funeral and doesn't show up himself. The family waited for two hours to start the funeral and they never showed up. I'm going to guess he also probably beat the shit out of the kids at the, on that day. He was for, known to, to to raise his hands to the kids. Yeah, you didn't get there, but context clues led me to believe that they were probably getting slapped up a bit. <laughs> right, right. All right, the year's 1958. Jimmy's 15 years old, and they're back in a group home. But now Jimmy's trying to be a musical sponge and learn anything from anyone who can teach him anything. He goes to high school in 1959, and Alice's father finally buys him an electric guitar. His first guitar, a white Supro Ozark, a right-handed model, but he restrung it for Lefty. And so now he's got a guitar. His next mission is to find a band. So from everything I can tell, he was a near savant on guitar and was able to teach himself very quickly and was learning a song a day as he was practicing at home. And his first gig was with some more established band kids from, from the neighborhood in the basement of a synagogue. And he was fired after the first set for being too flashy. So he started his stage <laughs> antics early. Foreshadowing. Yeah, man. He's always a guitar player. <laughs> his first real band was called the Velvetones, and they were good enough to get a gig at Birdland. There's one in Seattle. And it was really more of just an opportunity for Jimmy to go in and to watch other 
live musicians. He didn't even have an amp at this point. He had no guitar case. He would sometimes just throw it into a dry cleaning bag and get on the bus and, and go to the gigs. And this is heartbreaking, but Jimmy was so worried that Al was going to throw his guitar out because he, well, first off, he bought it for him. So what do you expect? But he didn't want him to become a musician. So Jimmy's worried about this and he leaves his guitar at Birdland one night and it gets stolen. Al freaked out because it was still on layaway, but it didn't kill him. He, he survived to, to play another day. So Jimmy turns 17 in 1959. He basically has dropped out of school at this point, and he joins another band called the Rockin' Kings. And with no guitar, the band chipped in and bought him his second electric guitar, which is a white Dan Electro Silvertone from Sears that came with an amp. There you go. Rob, that's the one you were talking about, right? 50 bucks. <laughs> Man, I might have to crowdsource my band for a new <laughs> instrument. I didn't know you could do that. So this, this band called the Rockin' Kings, they start getting better and better gigs, and they're opening for other bands at a place called Spanish Castle. Like the song, Spanish Castle Magic. I didn't realize that. That's about a, a nightclub in Washington. And it was the spot, the coolest spot to be. So Jimmy starts to self-promote. He shows up with his guitar, and he starts hanging around after gigs and just harassing other guitar players. Just teach me a couple licks. What'd you do there? Can you teach me this? And so he starts picking up some stuff. He's doing that sponge thing, right? But at 18 years old, Jimmy's making $20 a month and is hanging around fast food joints for the end of the day when they basically throw out all the food so that he can grab a couple burgers to eat something because he's incredibly emaciated at this point. Now, Jimmy gets into a little bit of trouble. He gets arrested twice in a week riding in a stolen vehicle. And he's given two options. One, probation for two years or two, Join the military. I've told this story before, but my dad, when he was a cop in Wilmington, they used to go for people who were arrested and were not even arrested. They were being sent off to the military and they would go and say, if you come and join the police force, you don't have to be drafted. You don't have to join the military. And he said that not a single person ever took them up on it. Oh, like, I think I'll go to the jungle and get oh shot God, at instead dude. of being a cop. That sounds a lot better. I yeah, don't, I don't I'd, I'd much cop. rather do like the full metal jacket thing than uh, <laughs> become a cop in Wilmington. Then have a career with a pension. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, all right. Let's break this up a little bit. Let's cue the music. And we're going to do a little bit of trivia with you guys today. All right. So I'm going to work my way around the room here. We're going to start with Tom. All right. It's kind of a Jeopardy style question here first. But in 1962, Jimmy did a two month run in Vancouver with a band called Bobby and the Vancouver's. Their lead guitarist was this actor slash comedian slash musician slash activist. Actor, comedian, musician, activist. Oh, good Lord. Want a hint? Yeah. All right, when Jimmy left that lineup, things went up in smoke. Oh, Cheech Marin? Tommy Chong, Tommy Chong was the yes. lead <laughs> guitar player. I thought you were going to say the guy from Jamiroquai. <laughs> <laughs> I, first of all, I can't believe you gave Tommy Chong like four titles and one of them wasn't Stoner. <laughs> yeah, right? Come on. That would have given it away. <laughs> would it, though? All right, Alan, you're up. We got a multiple choice here. Jimmy and his brother Leon, to make extra money, would go to a nearby farm and pick strawberries for extra cash. After they spent the day in the sweltering heat, they would routinely treat themselves to A, a hamburger, B, a milkshake, or C, a horse meat burger. Mm. 
I would actually dig on a horse meat burger, so I'm going to assume that that was not within means. So, uh, <laughs> what was one of them ice cream? I already forget the choices. The, the milkshake. That's B. <laughs> I'm going to go milkshake. No, it's actually the horse meat burger. Horse. It's what's oh, for okay. dinner. That was much cheaper than an actual hamburger, which you're right. I don't understand why a, a horse is cheaper than a cow, but either yeah, way. That seems like a delicacy. Yeah, it's actually kind of expensive nowadays. I've been looking into <laughs> exotic some meats. horse meat. Well, li- listen, I have a couple of like death parties planned in my life. And when Mitch McConnell dies, I'm going to throw a party where we have turtle soup and horse meat because he's <laughs> oh from Kentucky. And horse meat's kind of expensive. <laughs> Well, you must be ready for that party like any day now. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. Is why I've I've sourced already. I know. What... I don't plan to ever eat horse, guys. So just so you know. Really? Come if on. I don't have to, unless I'm on the Mongolian to. steppe or something, hanging out with like Khal Drogo or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rob, you're up. Which megastar English musician said that when he saw Jimi Hendrix perform live in England, it was the first time he'd ever seen a black person? Oh, geez. I have two possible people. Okay. Was it Keith Richards? No. Oh, did he hate black people? (laughs) (laughs) It was Eric Clapton. (laughs) Yet totally uh, bastardized their music. (laughs) (laughs) Was it McCarty? No. So here's your hint. When we last left Jimmy, he was having some trouble with the police. You're talking about Gordon Sumner? Yeah, Sting. The first time he saw a black person, it was Jimi Hendrix on stage. All right, Tom, coming back to you. True or false, Jimmy could play an F-sharp with his thumb. Oh, hell yeah, he plays the F-sharp with his thumb. Yeah, he's Bingo. got that weird wraparound style. He has super long fingers. That's the like the epitome of bad technique from a guitar teacher's point of view, but it is cool as hell. Sling it low and then cramp your wrist all wacky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, Alan. Jimi Hendrix once told this roadie, you're never going to be good at guitar. Words that he took to heart and picked up a bass. Uh, Stanley Clark. Now, here's your hint. In an alternate universe, he could have written a song called The Bass of Spades. Oh, Lemmy. Lemmy. Lemmy was a roadie on one of uh, Jimi Hendrix's early uh, tours. Yep, yep. And Jimi (laughs) Hendrix told him, you're not going to be good at guitar. Well, he, he didn't say what kind of guitar. Right. <laughs> All right. We're going to go to Rob. Which album kept Are You Experienced from reaching number one in the UK? Sgt. Pepper. There you go. Yes, that one's pretty easy there. All right. And then Tom. Jimmy, while standing beside Noel Redding, was once denied service at a bar in London for this reason. Hint, it's not because he was black. Is it because of the outfit that he had on? Yes, it was. It was because there was a circus in town. The <laughs> proprietor of the bar had a sign out front that said, no clowns. No and Jimmy and Noel Redding <laughs> walked in looking ridiculous with their frilly jackets and pants and hair. And the guy thought they were clowns and said, I'm sorry, I can't serve you. Uh, for those who haven't looked up these guys' outfits lately, It's like Austin Powers to the max, right? Yes. But let me tell you right now that if you don't want to look like a circus performer or a pirate and you actually want some sweet gear, you've got to check out the 1001 Album Complaints merch store. The link is in the show notes and we've got a ton of cool gear in there so you can impress all your friends. And dare I say it, you could even be a fashion trendsetter and help us spread the word about the show. (laughs) Adam, that was a sweet segue. I'll give that to you. That was was smooth. Yeah, that was butter. (laughs) 
listen, fans, we don't ask you for too much, but buy a shirt. We get a couple bucks. You buy us a beer in the process. You get to look cool. It's a win-win. Hell yeah. Trendsetter is not guaranteed, by the way. That's <laughs> the fine print. All right. So when we last left Jimmy, he was about to sign up for a three-year commitment in the Army. So he did that, but he requested to be in the 101st Airborne because they had a $50 a month bonus because you're jumping out of airplanes. So now he initially reveled in the structure of the military, namely because he got three meals a day, which was the first time he'd experienced consistent food in his entire life. But at the two-month mark, he was already counting down the days to the end of this commitment. So after qualifying as a sharpshooter, he eventually was assigned as a supply clerk for the 101st Airborne in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. While there, Jimmy meets a bass player who happened to be walking by as he was practicing, a bass player named Billy Cox. Yes, he met Billy Cox in the military, who was also serving a three-year stint as well. So they form a band and start playing in bars and clubs around the base, and this is Jimmy's first time fronting a band, mainly out of necessity. So Billy and Jimmy form a formal band called The Casuals, and they start playing around Nashville and some of the other nearby army bases. But while playing out in Nashville, this is the first time that Jimmy had run into serious racism and segregation. He grew up in Seattle, which was very integrated, very multicultural. This was the first time where he was being denied service and told to use you know, different bathrooms and being called names it started in, in Nashville when, when they were playing there. So as Jimmy is playing out, he had a bunch of touring opportunities pop up. But if he went AWOL and was caught, he'd get sent back to Seattle to do his two years probation. So only 10 months into his three years, Jimmy decides he needs to get the hell out. At this point, he's already pawned his guitar. And so what do you do? Much like Principal Skinner said, make a pass at your commanding officer. Well, <laughs> kind of. Jimmy visits the base psychiatrist and said that he was having homosexual tendencies and was fantasizing about his bunkmates and then went back and said he couldn't stop masturbating and he even made sure he was caught masturbating in the barracks because he was in love with his squad mates, he told the doctors. Was this like a bonus chapter from Catch-22 or something? <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a gutsy move to do this. Because if you were out back then, it wasn't unheard of to catch around during a live fire exercise if the other guys knew that you were gay. So the army eventually caves in and discharges him. So Jimmy publicly said that it was because he broke his ankle after jumping out of a plane. But we know that the true story is that he cried gay, essentially. So Jimmy leaves the base with $400 in his pockets and that is all the money that he's made in 10 months, and it's the most amount of money he's ever done. So he goes and he opens a bank account. I'm kidding. He goes to a bar and blows all the money in one evening, the same evening he gets out of the military. So now, once again, he's stranded in Clarksville with no money, no instrument, and just the clothes on his back. Did he by any chance take the last train there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that's what I still do when I get paid, is just blow it at the bar. So, I got to tell you, yeah. blowing $400 at the bar in 2023 money would actually be kind of difficult for me at this point. Like, what the fuck was he doing? Yeah, apparently he was just buying everything for everyone. Which, I, you know... I yeah, it's yeah. cool. Yeah, I can see that. If you yeah. grow up not with means and you're flush all of a sudden, like, yeah, I'll, I'll give him that. So Jimmy's doing pickup gigs, crashing on people's couches. He's waiting for Billy to get out 
which he was going to be discharged in three months. And so Billy gets discharged. He buys a guitar for Jimmy and they start gigging wherever they can. At this point, Jimmy is a madman in terms of playing. He's playing nonstop before gigs, after gigs, during set breaks, on the drive home, on the drive there. And he's also taking speed, which is helping him stay up at night and to just practice like a madman. And so he starts working on the Chitlin circuit. We've talked about this before in the Sam Cooke episode and the Solomon Burke episode. And that's essentially the Chitlin circuit is the, the barbecues, the clubs, the bars, the churches that black people played in, essentially, where they heard rock and roll, where they heard blues music, but it was very segregated. So they kind of had to stay in their own community. And this was called the Chitlin circuit. And now from 1962 onwards, Jimmy takes every gig he can find between Texas, Virginia, and Florida. And he starts to develop his own sound during this time and plays with an obscene amount of big acts as they work their way through the South. I'll just list a few here. Solomon Burke, Otis Redding, although Otis fired him for being too flashy and left him at a bus stop. The Marvelettes, Curtis Mayfield, who promptly fired him for playing too flashy, Bobby Womack, who fired him, Little Richard, Sam Cooke, Jackie Wilson. He's playing with everybody at this Didn't point. Didn't Little Richard fire him for being too flamboyant? I believe that was the <laughs> stealing exact quote. His, stealing his thunder, yes, being absolutely. Too, too flamboyant for Little Richard. That's well, amazing to me. Let me let me connect this joke because these guys that are have big personalities, they don't like to be upstage. So it's surprising that Solomon Burke didn't also fire Hendrix. But I assume the reason he didn't is because Hendrix was buying enough sandwiches from him after the gig. <laughs> oh my God, that's right. That is a good throwback, Rob. That is a pull. That's episode three, I think. Like, well done. <laughs> All right, so now wanting to get out of this grind, he jumps at an opportunity that he stumbled into for a gig in New York City. Now, he moves up to New York, and that gig evaporated before Jimmy even got there. But now he was in Harlem and was amazed at the sheer volume of black artists and musicians that lived in such a small area. So Harlem's music scene was awash in drug and prostitution, some of which Jimmy got into, got into a little bit of trouble there. And the crazy thing is that the black people in Harlem did not want to hear Jimmy's take on R&B, which he found just totally crazy. He assumed that when he, he got there and, and saw, saw the makeup that he would, he would do well because he was playing with all these Chitlin Circuit guys, but they didn't want to hear it. So he jumped back into gigging and started playing with the Isley Brothers in 1964. These guys are as strict as James Brown and would find musicians when they stepped out of line or played wrong notes. And he also started doing some uncredited session work in the studio as well in New York. But he's still not making any money. And he's living from gig to gig and sleeping in ship motels. It's probably because he played too many wrong notes with the Isley Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> it's also, also possible. I mean, listen, he's great, but he plays some wrong notes. Oh, yeah. He's free. He's, he's free with his playing, definitely. <laughs> So he gets more gigs. He's backing Ike and Tina Turner, King Curtis. He meets Arthur Lee and, and throws down some tracks with the band Love. And Jimmy stops playing in Harlem and eventually starts to move down into Greenwich Village, where all the beatniks and hippies and counterculture revolutionaries are, are all hanging out. So Jimmy meets Linda Keith, who is Keith Richards' girlfriend, and she introduces him to Acid. And Wait, wait. This, Ke Keith Richards' girlfriend's... Last is, name was Keith. Yes, the last name is, is Linda Keith. Now, he always said that it was just a platonic relationship, but there was always the potential of Keith Richards finding out and murdering him. I saw an interview with 
Linda Keith, where she talked about meeting Jimi Hendrix, seeing him play at a club randomly, asking him to come over. And then her exact words after that were, and then we went back to my house and had a wonderful evening. And so I don't know how platonic that sounds. So they just listen to records and talk about music or something. But and then I never talked to Keith Richards again. She kind of was like, then we went back to my place and just had like a wonderful evening. And then after that, I introduced her to a whole bunch of other people. And I was like, okay, it sounds like you got a little, you got down and dirty. I'm while he between the lines, but <laughs> yeah, while he was in New York, there was one time where his girlfriend at the time, and I can't remember her name, but she stumbled on him and he had seven girls in bed with them at one point <laughs> after a gig. So this is the life. Jimmy is living his best life at this point. Not bad for a guy with a nervous stutter, by the right. way. Right. <laughs> yeah, the he was definitely making up for lost time. <laughs> right, right. He, so he's playing a ton in New York and he meets our friend Randy California from the group Spirit. And he forms Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. He starts attracting a lot of New York City guitar players, and things seem to be happening. They seem to be clicking. But he's still struggling to make it. He can't even pay rent or really even buy food at this point. That is until a guy named Chaz Chandler shows up. Chaz Chandler is the bass player for the Animals. And he had been playing with the Animals for a decade and was looking to transition into being a producer. So he sees Jimmy and Jimmy's wild antics, playing the guitar behind his back, humping the guitar, playing it with his teeth, all the crazy stuff. He immediately freaks out and thinks that there's something untapped here. In fact, he was wondering, what's wrong with this guy? This guy is so good. How has no one signed him? Why is he not bigger? So with a gentleman's handshake, Jimmy agrees to fly to London with Chaz Chandler and give it a go. I heard that Keith Richards and Linda, his girlfriend, they tried to get Seymour Stein to sign him. And he passed. The guy that later signed Madonna and Talking yes, Heads that's and right. a very successful career. And so, yeah. and then they maybe helped pass him over to this, this animals fellow. I also wanted to point out that you're saying he was poor. He couldn't afford to eat. That kind of sounds like it's related to a drug problem, though. Just going to be I honest. could totally see that. <laughs> totally see that. You mean the guy who blew his $400 from the army in one night is financially responsible? He's not putting that away for a rainy day? When you're a speed addict, you need food a lot less. Yeah. Get done with a gig and you're like, I have $32 and speed costs $35. So I can talk my way into $35 worth of speed or I can get a slice of pizza and $30 worth of speed. <laughs> All right, with that, let's jump into by the numbers. So, 19. That's the cost of the adult admission ticket you're going to need to get into the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle. And, well, why would you want to go there? That's because that's where the first public memorial to Jimi Hendrix is. It's a couple large stones that are at heated. At the zoo. At the zoo. People freaked out when they wanted to do a public one because, I guess, a, a lot of the Religious folks at the time said that he's a druggie and, he, you know, he has a lot of sex and we can't glorify somebody like that. So they agreed to do it in a zoo. It's three stones, like third stone from the sun, I suppose. A little underwhelming. All right, the number two, the number of guitars Jimmy left at clubs overnight, thinking they'd be safe and which were subsequently stolen in his life. 40, the dollars Jimmy had in his pocket when he left from New York to London. And one, the promises that Chaz Chandler made to Jimmy in that gentleman's handshake, Jimmy had one requirement. He wanted to meet Eric Clapton. Blah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've heard enough. You're a 
piss poor negotiator there. <laughs> End the episode here. Not talking about royalties, not talking about anything. Like, Can I just beat this one fucking British asshole? All right, so it's September 24th of 1966, and Jimmy lands in England. Chas Chandler wants to get Jimmy out in public ASAP, but he needs a band. So Jimmy wants to put together a nine-piece big band. But, thank God, Chaz insisted on keeping it small to make sure that there was focus on Jimmy and so that he shined. I like that they built the band around him, but that's an interesting detail about the nine piece because I do think in some ways this material is kind of a throwback to not what was popular at that time, but what was popular seven to ten years before. There, you know, there is a kind of old school R&B Little Richard element to what he's doing, and I heard that this week, so that kind of makes sense. I will say that I definitely noticed with the album that they knew who the star was and they were showcasing that star in a way that was appropriate for the material. I don't think that the album would have been served by a bunch of sick Noel Redding bass. This is not what that album's about. (laughs) Well, you know, it's not like he came with a book of songs you know, it's not like he was songwriter first. It was like, here's a freak of nature who we just need to surround with capable musicians who are more than capable. I mean, these guys were, the sidemen were really slick on this record. Oh yeah. And it wasn't one of the details that that Chaz Chandler guy was shopping around the song. Hey Joe, because he had it in his head that it could yeah. be a hit. And it would it be a hit, right. Been a hit yet, but he needed to find the right artist to match it with a detail. Maybe, maybe we were going to get to it, but Hendrix was in a band called Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. Mitch Mitchell was apparently in a band called Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. <laughs> I saw that as well. I was like, did they just discover Blue Flame technology or something? <laughs> <laughs> it's like when Blue Raspberry came out in the 90s and it was like, whoa! <laughs> well, and Mitch Mitchell, what, what is back to the, like, what, Dave Davies and the... <laughs> Robbie Robertson. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I I don't know. Asshole parents is what it is. Because his name's got to be Mitchell. Mitchell, right? His name can't just be Mitch. His name's Mitchell Mitchell. (laughs) You're from No, no, it's different. It's different. There's only one L on the first Mitchell, and the second one has two Ls. (laughs) Oh, no. His name's actually John Graham Mitchell. Okay. All right. So the first band member they found was a guy named Noel Redding. He was a 20-year-old guitar player, formerly of the Love and Kind. And so Chaz reached out to him to see if he had any interest in being in a band, but that he'd have to play bass. He said, sure, he'd never played bass before, but he'd figure it out. And of course, because (laughs) bass is easy, he just played bass. So (laughs) I accept your demotion, Jimmy (laughs) Hendrix. I mean, frankly, if I was a guitar player and Jimmy Hendrix came up and started playing the guitar, I'd be like, I should probably find a new instrument. I'm going to put this down. (laughs) Something else out. Yeah. You got a harpsichord around here. So now this is probably one of the, the most well-known rock and roll stories of all time, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because it was something I wasn't, wasn't that familiar with. All right, so seven days after landing on October 1st, Cream was playing a gig at a place called the Polytechnic. Now, I want to remind everybody, Cream is the cream of the crop at this point. They are huge in England. They're the best of the best, all right? There's graffiti in London that says Clapton is God. And so Chaz Chandler had promised to introduce Jimmy to Clapton. And so they go to this gig. Clapton thinks he's just going to meet Jimmy at some point, but Jimmy shows up with his guitar. And they're in the audience. It's Chaz Chandler, Jimmy, and Jimmy's girlfriend for the first set. During the set break, 
Chandler calls up on stage and summons Eric Clapton over and asks Clapton if Jimmy could jam. Now, Clapton is just floored because one of these, don't you know who we are? And no one had ever done that. For whatever he did, he reason. You didn't want to jam with a black guy? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're saying Clapton acted like a piece of shit? Yeah. <laughs> I'm also Crazy. picturing, by the way, Jimmy standing in the crowd with his guitar on. With his like, guitar. Strapped on, just like, yeah, yeah, this is my time. Can I fucking show you up yet? Is it time for me to ruin your fucking month? <laughs> he's standing there with his broomstick. Yeah. <laughs> So everybody looked at Jack Bruce, the bass player, and he said, sure, and he can plug into my amp. So Jimmy gets on stage. Jack Bruce is a cool guy, by the way. Or yes. Eric Clapton, not a cool guy. <laughs> he, plug, he plugs into a spare channel on the bass amp, and he played the song Killing Floor. So I'm going to drop in a clip now of the song Killing Floor as played by Albert King, which I think was kind of the, the main version of the song at the time. A long time ago I should have quit you, baby A long time ago I should have quit you, baby Okay, so Jimmy gets up on stage, tells the band, hey, we're going to play Killing Floor, and then starts playing a version that sounds like this. like 90% faster. <laughs> yeah. Yes, completely faster. And so Clapton is just in awe at this point. Apparently he walks off stage because he just can't wrap his head around how good Jimmy is. Please. He throws a hissy fit by all accounts well, and is like yelling at people, right? <laughs> what, what? He's yelling at people because somebody's better? Is that... To get on stage, you got to have balls to know that you're about to blow away the main act that everybody's there to see. And it's Eric Clapton and Cream. That just set him on a trajectory we were talking about earlier that seven days from landing, already now, buzz is spreading. Who the hell is this guy who came from America and just killed God, who was yes. Eric Clapton at the time? Yeah, set aside the Eric Clapton stuff, which I know we've been having fun with, but just any old band inviting someone on stage, what are the chances that they're really going to dress you down musically? Total spiritual depancing situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so after this gig, they pick up Mitch Mitchell on drums, and all three members sign a contract with Chaz Chandler and his business partner, a guy named Michael Jeffries, who also actually came up with the name The Jimi Hendrix Experience. And on October 13th, Less than two weeks later, they play their first gig in France, which is only 15 minutes long. They were opening for a guy named Johnny Halliday. A month later, they're in the studio recording Hey Joe, which, as Rob mentioned, was originally written by a California folk singer named Billy Roberts. But most recently, a guy named Tim Rose had done a version that Chaz Chandler was just sure was waiting for a cover version to come in and, and to take off. 
So they keep playing. They're traveling around Europe. They're going to Munich. They're going to France. And in between their, their small tour here, they are in the studio writing and recording music. So kind of to cut to the chase here, the band does a lot of LSD. They sleep with a lot of women. They do a lot of speed. They write all the songs. They keep gigging. They're writing material, the recording material. And on May 12, 1967, this album, Are You Experienced, is released in the UK. I know it took a while for us to get here, but hopefully that brought you some good context. Let me just give you a few quick stats on the album. I saw that since its release, it has sold something like 40 million copies. It spent 33 weeks in the UK charts and topped out at number two. And in the USA, it was on the Billboard charts for 106 weeks. And it took about seven months for them to record between October of 66 and April of 67. So let's revisit the song we dropped at the top. This was the opening song on the album. This one's called Foxy Lady. Here I come, baby. I'm coming to get you. Jimi Hendrix managed to not come off as creepy because it's 1967. <laughs> <laughs> but even now, in out of context, even now, I still buy it completely. You could not do the song today, clearly. But hey, my I will say my first exposure to this song was from Wayne's World. <laughs> Same here, sadly. And I was like, "What is this?" And my dad was like, "Oh, that's Jimi Hendrix." And I'm pretty sure around 11 or 12 years old, I went and dug up the album. I just think it's an example of, it's an iconic riff, but it is also a simple riff. But the way in which it is played, the feel of the riff, the sound, the tone of the guitar, just all this swirling energy around that relatively simple riff combined with Hendrix's personality, all the little interstitial interjections in the lyrics that feel... I don't know if they are, but they feel very improvised. Well, even just the very first note, like the the way it fades in. That it's feedback. I feel like yeah. part of my biggest challenge with this album was having heard some of these songs so many times. This one specifically, it's almost like it's impossible to get a fresh sort of take on this. But that fade in where he's sort of bending up to an F sharp and doing like vibrato. I mean, it's just, it's, it's like an immersive guitar sound that, you know, many, many people, as I alluded to earlier, have tried to emulate this and have tried to do this type of thing, but it's so unique and it's so, it's just so powerful. That feedback intro is absolutely iconic. And I read that they said that he had, I believe two Marshall stacks in the studio cranked as loud as they could go and it was so painful that he couldn't even be in the booth was this when henry mancini had uh, (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to bang over here guys Um, (laughs) no but like you get that sound and i really was struck by looking at the other albums that were out this year none of them had that crunchy just absolutely at its peak 
cranked natural distortion sound. It was honestly, again, Alan, I'm on the same page as you. It's so hard to strip the 50 million times that I've heard this song out of my memory. I tried my damnedest to do it this week, and I was like, wow, that is a sound that you can get nowadays with pedals and shit like that without just cranking everything to 10, but you could tell that was really revolutionary. Maybe Adam's going to correct me, but I thought he was using one early fuzz pedal called the fuzz face. I think he's known for using like a very early incarnation of a fuzz pedal. Yeah, I think it was a combination of like overdrive and fuzz, but also placement of amps. Like I I do think it was assisted slightly, but I mean, clearly he was an inventor of these sounds in some way. It's hard to rehear this stuff. I totally agree. Intro, I you know, that could be the first time someone did something like that intro, that the hammer-on feedback thing. I read a note that struck me that said before Hendrix, feedback was considered a technical mistake, full stop. And he's maybe the first person, this this author was purporting he is the first person to incorporate it into the music. And then it became a standard of rock and roll sort of overnight. Did you guys hear the throat clear at 107? Dude, I had to listen to that so many times that I made a note of it. <laughs> and at first I thought he was just like, hey. But then, no, it's lit- it literally is like a... <clears throat> <laughs> they keep a lot of air and sound on the tracks in oh, general. Yeah. Guitar, vocals, everything. <laughs> I thought vocally they were the most careful in general on the record, but this was maybe an exception to that because they did the most vocal overdubs too. He's got the little breathy, foxy overdub, which I think was a really good call. They're judicious with the overdubs they choose to do. They don't do a lot, but when they do do them, they're usually a good idea. I wanted to point out the mix on this one since Phil's not here, but I thought the mix on this song was extra strange because Jimmy's voice is all the way panned left. And it's so loud. It doesn't make you feel, uh, you know, the concept of mixing, even hard pan mixing that we've maybe talked about or complained about in the past is supposed to be that you're by wearing headphones, you feel as if you're listening to a band somewhere in front of you. Right. And the placement of the instruments makes some kind of sense there. But in that case, it didn't didn't make any sense, especially when I, the listener, know that Jimi Hendrix is playing guitar and his disembodied voice is like way left (laughs) and the guitar is kind of like right of center. It just seemed really odd. But in general, vocals are are kind of down the middle and they as they should be. I feel like the vocals were very loud in the mix compared to the guitars. And when you can tell that it's coming through this just absolutely cranked amp, I wanted the guitars to be more present in the mix versus the vocal. And I think they mixed the vocal really high because it was hard panned and they were trying to get it to compete with the vocal, but then it just ends up blasting your left ear with vocal. And you're like, man, just fucking again, put it right down the middle, right down the middle. Mixes so, are supposed to gel. I'm kind of assuming that these, I'd always assume that these were live takes including the vocal in most cases save for the overdubs i mentioned do you know more about that but now with the anecdote about how loud the guitar was it just seems even no. harder even if you were in a vocal booth to do that right these were not the live vocals he overdubbed the vocals yeah but also we already mentioned sergeant pepper which was being recorded at the same time in a different studio in London, right? So much cleaner. Is that just money and technology or is it aesthetics? I think it's part aesthetics because you talk about you're in a, an environment where 
the guitar is so loud that even in the vocal booth, it sounds painfully loud. The bleed onto those drum mics is going to be insane. There's no way that you're getting a clean take. Even a mic right in front of the bass cabinet is going to pick up that guitar if that guitar is that loud. So I think part of it is just the way that they went about it was inherently dirty. And they had to kind of play into the dirt and accept the dirt and have the dirt be part of the experience, which it kind of is. And it it very much, I was impressed by how live band these takes sounded. It really does sound like a live band. That's why the hard panned vocals make no sense. Yeah, it throws it off. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on to our next song on our focus list. This one is called Manic Depression. This is the song that I liked the most on re-listening. Or sorry, I should say my opinion of this song changed the most this week in a positive direction. If you had asked me a week ago what I thought about this song, I would have told you it was trash. I didn't want to listen to it (laughs) at all. I don't know. I just had a low opinion of it amongst the other Jimi Hendrix hits. But it came up in my estimation this week. I think it might have the best solo on the record. I thought it was real raucous and unbluesy in a really positive way. And I like how Jimmy eggs on his own solo by saying, cry on guitar. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I always sort of, I don't want to say dismiss this song, but in the catalog, this was, was never one that I held up with the other big hits. But upon re-listening, it occurred to me how many songs after this have borrowed from this sound. Like as I was listening to it again for a deep dive, I just kept thinking like, man, everything sounds like this. There's so many riffs. So it just, it almost like set a template in a way that I just never like appreciated before. I felt like this sounded like one of the better constructed songs. That was a song that could work with more than just Jimi Hendrix doing it. Some of these songs are like, they work because it's Jimi Hendrix, full stop. Anybody else doing it would not be nearly as good, nearly as cool. This is a song that I could see a lot of people doing, and it still actually would be pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I was looking at the chords. It's all major chords, which is already a little bit strange. It's in A-flat mixolydian, which means it's basically in D-flat, but based on the fifth tone of the scale. So, and And it has a lot of written rhythmic interplay from the band or rhythmic changes. Whereas I think normally what you're saying, Tom, is a lot of that variety is often supplied by Jimmy, either vocally or on the guitar, where it just seems like he's just vamping and creating a lot of that variety on his own. That's not the case here. Yeah, and very good drums. Mitch Mitchell does a great job of putting together a very specific drum part that fits for this song. And I mean, the Jimmy parts are great, don't get me wrong. The guitar bends over the second verse, iconic. The sweet calls in vain. You and imprecise, too. They are not right on the money, mm-hmm. but they sound great, and they have a lot of flavor and a lot of soul. And 
not to keep dunking on Clapton, but I'm going to dunk on Clapton <laughs> again. Like Clapton just sounds so sterile compared to this. It sounds raw and real and live. And I feel like if Eric Clapton had put those same guitar bends on a track, he'd have gone back and redone them and been more, more precise and quote unquote better about them. Again, this is a song that could be cool if not done by Hendrix, but done by Hendrix is very cool. It's very cool, yeah. I do like how he just ends the song. The last lyric in the song is just him going, depression. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> I mean, his vocals, he gets all the credit for guitar, of course, as well he should, but his vocals are really astoundingly just fun and full of personality. He just sells all the songs. It's just total swag. He could say it, whatever. Whatever it is that came out of his mouth, we would all accept as like, yeah, that's badass. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next song on the focus list. By the way, I basically didn't put any hits. Alan, you had mentioned earlier this week, if you want to listen to this album, just turn on classic rock radio. So I wanted to focus on stuff that was not hits. So the next song on our list is Love or Confusion. Adam, perhaps we should tell the audience, because I don't think we did quite yet, that many of the hits are not on the original release. That's point of confusion one. Purple Haze, for instance. If you right. go to Spotify and you look up Are You Experienced, you'll see it as Purple Haze as the number one track, I believe. But Purple Haze was not on the original release, the UK release that we're basing our focus list on. Yeah, right? and that's kind of what I was yeah. getting at with that comment in our thread was, you know, I looked at the track list that Spotify fed me and... You know, there was like Hey Joe, Purple Haze, Wind Cries Mary. And I sort of saw all those and was like, oh, this is just basically a glorified greatest hits. Mm-hmm. But the UK version omitted those songs. Yeah. When I first saw the Spotify track listing, I was like, I didn't know Are You Experienced was a double album because it's a fucking <laughs> hour <laughs> long. <laughs> and it does not fit on a vinyl. So it's 18 songs and an hour. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I kind of dug in a little bit more. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I mean, I kind of don't get it why they would I don't put get it radically at all. different tracks on two different releases, but okay. They thought Americans had a different appetite. Yeah. On balance, I kind of think Purple Haze, even though it's been played out, I've heard it kind of too many times, like, like all of us have, I think it is one of the most oppressive tracks of this era, but it is not on the record, so we shan't be talking. So in, in the context of the UK release, Adam, the, really the only hit you left off was Fire. Okay, sorry, we haven't talked about Love or Confusion yet, which Adam played a moment ago. I thought there was pretty good use of good gu- two guitars here, which is rare for Hendrix. I, th- I want to say it's rare for Hendrix because he fills up so much space with one guitar or purposely leaves space. And But the problem is I thought the solo was kind of tepid because it's mixed real low compared to the rhythm guitar.
It might be one of those, like one of those production choices that they made, trying to condense down tracks, and all of a sudden they're like, "Oh shit, did we pump that solo up when we bounced it down? We didn't. Uh, damn, right? It's committed Maybe. now. I this was not my favorite song on it. It's okay. I like I actually kind of like out the beginning, very beginning of the song. You can hear like the dirty pots on his guitar when he's like riding that volume knob. Yeah. Oh no, he's flicking the pickup switch. Oh, he's flicking a pickup switch. Okay, but you can hear it. Yeah, like, you yeah, shouldn't yeah. be able to hear that actual the clicking. Like, you should hear the tone change, but not the clicking. Yeah, right, it's right. It's real loud. That means you haven't cleaned that shit in a right. long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is probably my least favorite, from the, at least from the focus list, certainly. I mean, I don't think there are any huge low points. This whole record kind of has a vibe, but I didn't love this tune. I loved the vocal treatment. Super wet, super reverby. I loved that vocal treatment. And I think that, honestly, one of the things that Jimi Hendrix does not get enough chance to shine in some of these songs is really out front vocals because so much of the air is taken up by the guitar. He's just sucking all the oxygen out of the room with that. We, I mean, Rob, you mentioned it earlier. Like His vocal delivery is so cool and so engaging and endearing. I would have liked a little bit more out front and care given to how they treated the vocals. And I feel like they treated the vocals very well on this song. He was never very confident with his voice and in fact, didn't like his voice. And it wasn't until somebody, when he started listening to Dylan, that he was like, oh, this is hip. I can get away with this. But he was never, <laughs> but he was never truly confident. <laughs> Maybe I should rework one of his tunes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which he was doing live at the time still. Wait, wasn't that a Dave Matthews tune? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're closing with it tonight in Charlottesville. <laughs> fucking probably are. Uh, you know what? In all honesty, I'm going to look up Dave Matthews Band's set list, <laughs> and I'm going to see what the last set that they played was, and I guarantee you all along the watchtowers on it. I think it's funny, though, with his voice. I can see why he might have been not o- overly confident about it, but it's not just his voice. It's his personality around being a frontman. And as much as these songs have been covered by bar bands, good and bad, throughout the years, I'm sure we've all played these songs at some point, I can't think of a lot of other people in the lineage who kind of have his vibe, which is to say lead guitar player plus front man, loose aesthetic. Do you, do you know what I mean? There aren't a ton like that. No, you're you're exactly right. That's a, such a great point because I've never been in straight cover bands, you know, but I've, I've been in bands that have covered many songs and I've never once felt compelled to do a Hendrix song for that reason, because I feel like the, like the songs are good. Like he has many good songs, but there's a secret sauce that I feel like if you're not bringing to the table, you know, yeah. like I've heard people cover like Red House, for example, many times. And it's like, there's really nothing special about that song other than the fucking massive, like show of force that he's putting off yeah. on that album that like, you can't, you can't do. Adam, do you remember when we were in our high school band that we did a Hendrix medley? Oh, my God. A bunch of 14-year-old kids. Of, like, nine <laughs> Hendrix songs <laughs> that we would play. So not only did we choose to do a Hendrix song, we did all the Hendrix songs. <laughs> not very well. That might have been the best approach, though, honestly. But I, I think the message here is choose your covers wisely, kids. Because you have to be able to do it some kind of justice. And just as you said, the Red House cover thing, I mean, I totally agree. But my mind was drawn to Stevie Ray Vaughan. I'm sure it did Red House, right? He probably did a great job. 
And in case anybody was curious, I pulled up a 2023 Dave Matthews Band <laughs> set list aggregator. The third most common song as a main set closer is All Along the Watchtower. And the third most common song as an encore closer is also All Along the Watchtower. <laughs> so they're either playing at the end of the set or they're playing at the end of the encore. And Ants Marching is number two on the <laughs> encore closers and number one on the main set closers for Dave Matthews Band, who I don't hate as much as I should. I will just put that out. I don't hate Dave Matthews Band as I much as I don't mind them, guys. Yeah. I like Dave Matthews. They were great. We had lots of fun seeing them. I got no problem with them. But it is weird to not rotate your set a little bit more, especially if it's a cover. Yeah. Keep uh, yeah. churning, guys. Come on. Yeah. I feel like the Albinator might spit them out soon. I feel like we're priming. Oh, yes. Oh, God. Are they on <laughs> yeah. the list? All right. Let's stay focused, guys. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the next song on our focus list. This one, Jimmy breaks it down a little bit. This one's called May This Be Love. Waterfall, nothing can harm me at all. My worries seem so very small, but my waterfall. I can see my rainbow. This is my favorite song on the focus list. Absolutely. They let him sing, right? They did. Yeah. And he sounds great. What? Okay. <laughs> well, he's not a very precise singer. Sure. He's got a lot of feeling and a lot of tone. He's not a very precise singer. And you can tell when basically the first line that he delivers in each verse he doubles himself. Yeah. And there is a lot of whoa, 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 That's whoa, a little whoa, whoa, going yep. on with his doubling. It's not super precise. It sounds great. Honestly, this is the song that I was like, this is going on a playlist. This one I'm going to continue to listen to. Not what I was expecting. And I frankly don't think I'd ever heard this song before. It's fantastic. I really did like this song too. I, don't, I wasn't very familiar with this. Like, I'm sure I've heard it in having gone through the album like in passing before, but never like an intentional listen. I really thought it was a nice little chiller, but what I liked about it most was, you know, the sidemen I do think are unheralded on this record. I know we've spent all this time talking about Jimmy, but the drums on this track, I felt like were very Ringo-esque in a way that it's taken me decades to appreciate what Ringo brought to the table. And I really thought that the drums on here were very non-traditional I, th I think they kind of carried the song in a way whether it was intentional or not and so this was a nice like little find for me i thought i'm glad you said that i took note of the drums too i think he does a lot of great stuff i think he is unheralded and i don't know it sounded like when they were in the studio maybe it was during this recording maybe it was during the next sessions these guys were starting to get annoyed that they didn't have more sway that it was the Jimi hendrix show kind of all the time, including in the studio. I just wanted to point out that I like the song fair enough. I do like this softer side of Jimmy, and I think this sounds a lot more like the next record, I think the next record, which is Axe Bold as Love, which I would consider my favorite Hendrix record. So it points the way to the future and kind of the his mode that I like the most. All right, let's move things along. We're going to round out our focus list today. The last tune we're going to talk about is I Don't Live Today. Come on. 
This song is heavy. I had forgotten about this song. When this song comes in for the chorus, it's like monster music. Like it, it, it sounds, it sounds <laughs> like early Black Sabbath. They hit so hard coming into that chorus. I just, it's badass. This was my least favorite song. Oh, really? Oh, I really didn't like this song. And I think that it's because we were just giving Mitch Mitchell a lot of credit on the last song for crafting a singular beat for that song, which I agree. It's, it's great. The beat on this one sounds just so plodding that it felt like the song was being held back the entire time. It never really got going. I thought that this one was lacking in terms of its... Overall construction, it felt like an unfinished song to me. Was this a song where they? It seemed like they were just playing with the like the volume sliders at the end. At the oh, end, God. it's a little like, hokey. Yeah, they're just like bringing it up and down. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really see the, the value add. There. It's just it's just Jimi Hendrix rambling. He's not like he's just saying like, oh damn. <laughs> Even he sounds like he doesn't expect it's going to end up on the tape. You know? Right. I wrote, and he was one of these guys that recorded so much tape over his short life. Right. But I just wrote that I bet this is a barn burner live. Like the fact that they would kind of jam it out, and you know they were tr- maybe trying to transfer it from the stage to the studio. With I thought I'm kind of in the middle on it of what you guys said. I liked parts of it. I see how it could be really cool live. I dug all of the drone feedback that was going on. So th- there's a point where he's just there. There's one guitar track where it's just feeding back and he's just riding the whammy bar to keep it going, which I thought was very cool. And uh, the nosedive, which again, I don't know how much people were doing that. I did have a note too. And I'm like laughing as I'm looking at the note, because I think I was referencing the part that you were just talking about, Adam. And I, maybe I didn't have the words to capture it in my head, but I just wrote solid guitar part. <laughs> <laughs> on a Hendrix song. <laughs> right. On a Hendrix album. Well, like, oh, yeah, yeah, guitar yeah. I guess there were some solid guitar parts on here. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to vote. We're going to throw things around the room here to see if you actually need to hear this album before you die. So let's throw it to Alan first. I'm not going to leave you with a ton of suspense here. I mean, it's, it's it's one of the best debut albums of all time. Rob, you made fun of me earlier for being a little bit sort of highfalutin on it, but it changed music. It's, yeah, it's on there, clearly. All right, Tom. Yeah, clearly, it's a yes. If you want to have an intelligent conversation about blues-based rock music and somebody says, well, what do you think about the first Jimi Hendrix album? And you say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> then your opinion is immediately invalid. So yeah, listen to this album. Clearly, it's great. And it's not that terrible to listen to. It's not like you're going to be like, oh God, this is such a slog. I'm doing it for homework. It's fucking great. Listen to it. Rob. Of course, it's an easy yes, but I'm going to qualify it a little bit. Jimi Hendrix is a really important artist. He changed guitar. We talked about that quite a bit. He changed how to approach it in so many ways. He was experimental with it in so many ways. And yes, as his debut, it's an important piece of the puzzle. I really think any musician, modern musician worth their salts or people that care about music should get familiar with Jimi Hendrix generally. I do not think this is the best of the Jimi Hendrix catalog, especially not the UK release. I think it's missing those key singles like Purple Haze and Wind Cries Mary. But this dude made the guitar sound like a plane landing. And I don't know, even know how you do that now. 
You know, it just you, like try to get yourself to listen to this record. I think you have to try to prepare yourself and think contextually about what was the experience like back then. That's I think what we've tried to give you today is the context. So just go at it with that. And I just want to say too, you know, he obviously died young. I think everyone knows Adam didn't tell that part of the story, but I don't feel this way about so many musicians. Many musicians have died young, sadly. I can say with confidence, and I found myself thinking this week, I really would have loved to have seen what Hendrix would have done in the 70s and beyond. And I, I just don't feel that way about a lot of musicians who were taken too early. But Hendrix was a guy who was like constantly evolving and changing as he went, even in his short life. So it's a real, I think it's a real bummer and a loss to music specifically that we lost him. All right, so it's going to be a clean sweep. Obviously, it's a yes for me. I agree with everything everybody said. All right, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget, we've got a week to prepare and an hour to share. So if I missed anything crucial, which I obviously did, so feel free to drop us an email at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Speaking of writing to us, I'm going to throw things over to Rob, who's got his hand in the mailbag this week. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, I'm just going to read a quick one here. Comes to us from Jason from the State of Amorica podcast, a Black Crows dedicated podcast. And he he's he has a bone to pick about our Black Crows episode, but he has some nice things to say as well. He says, you guys mentioned, we recall that we did Shake Your Money Maker, the debut Black Crows album some months ago. Right. He says, Jason, you guys mentioned the needed presence of the keys by Chuck and the difficulty of potentially soloing or playing any lead over the open tunings of the Black Crows. This is what led to the hiring of two keyboard players after Shake Your Money Maker, and this is when the real magic begins to happen. Number two, as we alluded to on the show, he says the Black Crows, of which he is an expert. I, I just told you he is a host of a all-Black Crows podcast. Right, right. So he speaks with some authority. The band is indeed a jam band, but with much more structure and intentionality than your average jam band. But the pillars of the jam segments don't appear on Shake Your Moneymaker. They start to show up with their sophomore effort and beyond. The lineup produced three undeniably amazing records that all should be on the list, but none of them are Shake Your Moneymaker, according to this expert. So basically what he's saying is we need to get dive deeper into the Black Crows catalog. He got his request in a little late, I might add, but he did get his request in. He says, as a request, I'd like you to review the, the other Black Crows records, Southern Harmony and The Musical Companion. Oh, so good. Or even Amorica, his personal favorite, as a true expression of what the Black Crows are. Nice. So thank you, Jason. Jason, thank you for writing in. And I agree with you. I, I am a huge Black Crows fan, so I was a, a little disappointed that Shake Your Moneymaker was, in fact, the album that they picked. I, I think Amorica is probably the peak of their uh, creativity. So thank you for writing in. All right, we're going to throw things over to Tom, who has the... No, we're not. We are not going to throw things over to Tom. No Albinator. That's right. <laughs> we're going to throw things back over to Rob, who has continued. No, no, you can to, give it to Tom. It's fine. Who has continued to tally votes for uh, continuing our listener request month here? <laughs> okay. Yes, thank you, Adam. Well, I've been tallying. We had to order some extra computers, some computing machines. <laughs> I have a slew of abacuses behind me. Abacai. And, uh, Abakai, Abakai, and the votes. Well, that one, that one Black Crows vote throws a wrench into the. It line. really does. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna... right. I have to retally everything. This <laughs> SQL query is going to be running for the next seven hours. No, I think we can confidently say what the next listener request 
selection is albinator be damned this one came in hot and heavy from the start there's a lot of love for this band out there although they are a little more on the indie side i'm talking about pavement and the album is called crooked rain crooked rain surprising album surprising that it got that many votes i have to say i was also surprised Maybe Steve Malkmus out in Portland was like stuffing the ballots to, <laughs> you know, drive this one home. So look forward to that, listeners. Listen to Pavement's Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, and join us again next week. Adam, back to you. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. All right. Well, that's going to do it here for us at 1001 Album Complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. I'm Rob. And I'm Tom. Boosh. Boosh. <laughs>